HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, and with special guests today, we have the other half calling in from the West Coast live. Hello. Oh. The other side of the country. Sounds good. Yeah? The thing that, yeah. You sound clean. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? It's I, been a I, while. This is uh, Darren Bresnan. It's the other half of Snacky Tunes calling in from 3,000 miles away. As you know, we've been doing field pieces out here in L.A., and we're going to continue to do some. But wanted to call in for one of our favorite episodes every year, which is our annual trend show. Michael, how are you? Hi there. It's snowing here. And it's, it's, all, and, it's, it, and it's all your fault. Yes. Well, we have. It's about sixty-five, maybe seventy, and sunny. Oh man. Uh, I'm a big <laughs> fan of seasons. I mean, I don't know about anybody else, but I, I really do love. Uh, I do love snow. I like the winter. I think it's a good time for creativity. Listen, I I think everyone loves the start of winter, and then I think two or three months in, everyone goes, "All right, I got it." Like the dirty snow and the cold feet. I think everyone just wants to move on at some point. Yeah, well, we'll send some dirty snow out to you tomorrow. Yeah. Um, okay. So this is uh, so Mike. So this is the yeah. annual uh, trend show, and this I think I think we did the math. I think this is the fifth year that you've been on doing this. So <laughs> we've got half a decade under our, our belt, which is kind of amazing. You don't look that old. No, you look even younger than when we started. Um, we want to get right into it because it, there's a lot to kind of cover. Uh, in the first year, but I think the biggest topic this year is going to be the abolishment of tipping in the uh, first, I guess, New York and then further U.S. scene. So if you want to maybe give people a quick update of where things are in the no-tipping movement, just to catch everyone up to speed, it's a good place to start. It's fairly complicated. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's one thing to say we're going to have a restaurant and there's no tipping. Uh, and uh, that's not uh, part of the American culture, although it's true almost everywhere else in the world. We're we're unique in the in the tipping business. Uh, there have been in this country a number of very high upscale, high priced restaurants that uh, have the tip built into the uh, price of the menu, uh, and uh, that has seemed to work for them, but. Things have gotten very complicated recently. Minimum wages are going up, number one. Mm -hmm. Um, Number two, uh, there are all kinds of uh, new state and federal regulations on how you can handle the money for tips. Uh, And the government has been cracking down because uh, in theory, not in theory, in in fact, the the tips that you leave for your waitstaff uh, only can go to the wait staff. They can't go to the managers. They can't go to the people who take your coat. They can't go to anybody in the kitchen. Uh, the result of that is that uh, as prices have risen in the last 10 years, which they sure have, 
uh, the wait staff in the front of the house is making more and more money, uh, but the people in the back of the house are stuck. Uh, right. They're, they're working in uh, hot situations. Uh, they're underpaid. Uh, they're underappreciated. And they are getting really resentful of the spread that's happening between the front of the house and the back of the house. So this is uh, an interesting example of American inequality spreading out. But is, I mean, the thing that I am surprised about is that I always assume that there was a gap between back of house where, you know, an hourly line cook versus, you know, kind of the how much can I make um, wait staff? Is it was the gap just a lot less? Were they a lot closer together or was it just not talked about? Because I feel like even back then, you know, or I mean, even five, ten years ago, the gap was still there. The gap was there. Yeah. The gap was there. It was nowhere near as large as it is now. And but even more important is what you just said. It's, it was not talked about. And as that gap has become increasingly large, uh, it's become clear that uh, the people in the back of the house uh, whose salaries have been kept down uh, are underpaid. Mm. They're underpaid. uh, Let me rephrase that. Uh, They're being exploited by the restaurant industry. Uh, They are underpaid and you and I as taxpayers are supporting the restaurant industry with our taxes because after they get their miserable paychecks, then they get income transfers called welfare, uh, uh, food stamps, uh, uh, earned income credits to top up their income. And that topping up of their income so they can live uh, is paid for us by the taxpayer rather than by the diner and the owners of the restaurants. And that I mean, that argument, uh, and I've seen that where it's like that. those fingers are pointed at the McDonald, Burger Kings of the world. But does that statement apply to your even your like favorite mom and pop place that's like a 40, 40 top? Is it a ubiquitous kind of statement or is it more like focused on the you know fast food it's industry? A, it's, it's a ubiquitous kind of statement. Mm. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the, re- the resentment, as I said, is, is building. Uh, and it's there is now uh, fomenting a, a kind of social crisis and a, and a racial crisis mm. because um, now that I plant this image in your head, uh, you'll find the wait staff in the front of the house uh, is largely white. Uh, you'll find that the people staffing the kitchen are mostly people of color, uh, immigrants, uh, and uh, it's uh, it it's, it it gets a bit a bit shameful. So then, does the burden become then on the diner to say that if you know they want to support going out to eat and adjusting for prices, it's their responsibility to continue the trend of eating out as much as everyone does. You you put your finger on on a very important point. Uh, okay. Menu prices have been artificially low because of the cheap labor available in the back of the house and the fact that uh, the diner really pays the waitstaff rather than the restaurant paying the waitstaff. So if I say to you, oh, well, uh, we're going to have to raise the prices uh, in order to pay the people in the back of the house living wage uh, and the menu prices are going to go up, then the answer to your question is, yeah, uh, the diner should be paying the bill. Now, does that mean that we're going to see restaurants close? That some are just not going to be able to adjust to you know this new form of paying and tipping and going out to eat? Assuming that uh, the no tipping movement spreads, and, and it is spreading, uh, if it takes hold, then uh, there is a possibility that the consumers will rebel and uh, go out to eat less often. Or fewer of them go out to eat. I mean, and you've right. al- and you've already seen some restaurants implement it and then reverse it um, without naming any names. It, it some of them have failed at the experiment. What do you think that does to speak for the future? There have been restaurants that uh, instituted a no tipping policy and then reversed themselves because they lost their wait staff. Mm. Uh, right. And uh, all that points out to is that uh, the menu prices are not high enough. Uh, they're not high enough to support paying uh, 
an increased minimum wage to waiters, which is happening, and to equitably pay the people in the back of the house, which is why I say menu prices have been artificially low. Uh, it, it may take another five or ten years for this to happen, but if the spread, uh, and it is spreading, uh, takes hold in this country, then we'll be looking at a different set of economics on eating out. Do you think that we're going to no. see less... Don't fight over me, guys. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Do you think that we're going to just see less restaurants and maybe more automation it could be less restaurants fewer restaurants okay could be fewer restaurants uh on the fast food level uh and uh down at that price range definitely more automation uh we're seeing a lot of automation uh right now uh even on the on the customer's side of the equation uh when you walk into a fast food joint or a fast casual joint and there's a bunch of kiosks uh, where you can place your order, uh, that's putting the burden on you, the customer, to provide the information to the restaurant rather than you interfacing with a real human being. Yes, and I think that we're also seeing trends where, you know, as tipping or going out becomes more costly, you're looking at, you know, this, I would say, uberization of getting food delivered to you, where it's a lower price, it's Tipping's not even consideration, and you have essentially endless possibilities to eat at your fingertips without even leaving the comfort of your home. Well, that's that's a whole other uh, new revolution. Uh, yeah, the, the uberization of the food business, uh, in part, is is what you said, but in part, I think you weren't quite accurate because the prices of the food that is are foods that are delivered to you ultimately will reflect the cost of somebody's uh, gas somebody's car and, sure. and somebody's logistical system and you're paying willingly it appears uh you're paying for the convenience of having that food delivered to you uh is uh, but doesn't it get more does it get more competitive though as you know more people are offering to deliver food to you at home uh it's be coming competitive in, in two areas. Uh, there are too many companies starting up around the country to deliver food. Uh, the big gorillas in this business right now are Uber, Google, and Amazon, uh, and Postmates uh, somewhere down the line. Uh, yeah. But there are uh, startups all over the country that are just uh, burning through money uh, trying to get big enough so that they can either acquire uh, some other small companies or get acquired by one of these big ones. Uh, and there's too many of them. They're causing a traffic jam. <laughs> and what's interesting <laughs> is that, um, as you point out, so many of them are not actually uh, in the food business. They're in the service or customer delivery business. Which is, which they're, is, in, they're, in, they're in the logistics business. And I know that we talked about Uber, but I, I really was surprised when I saw Uber Eats pop up last year. Um, I, I was just surprised. Well, when you think about it, uh, the people who have bricks and mortar stores, and I'm talking mostly about the retail industry, uh, discovered long ago that uh, their customer visits to their stores have been, de been declining, and their business has been declining because people are doing things online. And you can get something delivered <laughs> tomorrow from Staples if you need a ream of paper uh, for, no, for no cost at all. So the next logical step is, well, if we're delivering paper and we're delivering uh, groceries and we're delivering whatever else you want online uh, and Amazon can get it to you in a day, well, why not, why not food? Right. Right. Especially since people eat every day, but they don't necessarily order a sofa every day. Have you done any of the um, at-home, uh, like Blue Aprons? Have you dipped your toe into that water? I'm, we're highly un-American. Uh, we don't order it at all, but that's because I have a fabulous wife who's a fabulous chef Fair enough. Uh, and cookbook author. Right. And uh, so we eat well enough uh, without uh, Domino's. Uh, now, one of, one of the things about uh, the, the people in logistics and the delivery service is that are you finding that restaurants are losing control? You know, I'm at home. I just want ribs near me. The delivery people don't care about giving me the like the the best ribs. They just want to get ribs to me, and I, f I feel like you can like pay for you know Google search results to get my ribs to the top of the list. Uh, 
that's a very real complexity that's being added on to the restaurant industry uh, because uh, the delivery people are the tech people. They're not the food people. And your name, when you, when you order something from Google or Amazon or any one of them, uh, you become valuable information to those companies. Uh, they will, especially if, you, if you're a frequent orderer, they'll know what, you're f what you like, when you like it, uh, how often you order, how much you spend, and uh, what your rank is on the, on the frequent ordering system scale. Uh, and that ordinarily would be the information that a restaurant would want to have. Uh, but suddenly there's this intermediary between the restaurant and the customer uh, that's changing the equation of who has the power. I wonder if uh, Amazon will, like, after, you know, extensive barbecue ordering, will just send you, like, you might like an at-home grill book and grill set and try to uh, even cut <laughs> them out further just to, like, you know, gift suggestions hey, for you and your friends. You ordered, yeah, you ordered ribs. You might like these tongs yeah. and this barbecue book. <laughs> I mean, it... it it's it, all possible. Yeah. It, but but before that happens, uh, they may, uh, next Thursday, since you ordered ribs last Thursday, uh, send you three places in your neighborhood that will mm -hmm. deliver ribs in an hour. Right. Oh, yeah. It's Thursday rib night at the, uh, you know, McSuffins, right? Yep. So, you know, and, uh, you know, the other, in, the other thing that we're seeing, and you had brought this up a few years ago, but it, it's back and, and stronger than ever, that sort of competing for you know, shared place on the dinner plate, um, or retailers who are once again stepping up their food game in a more gourmet way. I know that uh, you talked about you know years ago with Dwayne Reed having you know a, a grab and go section, but now you're seeing Saks Fifth Avenue, you're seeing Outdoor World, you're seeing all these stores that are just being like, come here, stay here, and have great food as 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 you shop. There's uh, an increasing amount of that happening, and for a very good reason, the same reason that I, that I raised a few minutes ago. Uh, retailers are really scared uh, about the drop in traffic in their stores. Uh, and even if, uh, even, even if you uh, go online from your favorite department store and buy a shirt, uh, you might not buy anything else, while if you're in the store, you have an opportunity to uh, be tempted by, by two or three other items and the amount you spend in the store goes up. So we need a way to get people into the stores, and that's restaurants. Uh, again, as I said, you eat every day, but you buy a sofa not too often. Uh, and, or, or a car. Uh, or, or a car. Yeah. Um, and uh, by the way, uh, uh, Porsche has a showroom in, in Atlanta with a restaurant. Oh, yeah. Uh, the... Uh, are those restaurants? One of, one, one of the big retail companies just bought uh, for mega million dollars a, uh, a small but growing restaurant company in Philadelphia. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh -huh. that's, that, I mean, that's public, right? Yes. I yeah. mean, they bought, they bought Mark Vetri's restaurants. Well, what's interesting is like we actually, my parents and I ate at the Mark Vetri restaurant that's on the Urban Outfitter campus maybe like over the summer. Yeah. So – I mean, I wonder if that was a coy positioning of Mark, who was a former guest here, or it kind of opened their eyes. But but Urban Outfitters has been doing it with like the Gorbals and everything. I feel they they were yeah. pretty ahead of the the trend. Yes, but uh, now they're putting uh, a lot of money into it. Mm. Uh, there are a lot of people scratching their heads, wondering why it was necessary <laughs> to buy a company. Uh, but uh, they they're going to be expanding uh, not just Mark Vestry, Vetri's restaurants, but several others as well. One of the things that I want to ask you about that you note about is that um, you say that it will increase um, how much they purchase for every hour they stay. So is it something where like they'll buy something, they'll eat, then they'll buy something else? Is that is there Correct. data on that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the 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 idea of having a restaurant in a department store uh, is that at some point you sit down uh, and have something to eat and get up refreshed enough to continue shopping. And by the way, this is true not only uh, in uh, department stores. Uh, these are the same economics that work in uh, museums, which is why they have right. restaurants. Right. Uh, and the restaurants are usually next to the gift shop. Right. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's also uh, the fundamental economics behind theme parks. Uh, because, oh, yeah. because they know the longer they keep you on the premises, the more money you will spend per hour. I think I think uh, Disneyland and Disney World are the kings 
kings and queens of, of keeping you there and having food and options for every desire of all ages. Correct. And uh, I mean, I know yeah. Mark Vetri is a really good example in urban, but do you have a sense of if these um, stores are opening restaurants that are competing by the same rules that they're trying to go after stars and Michelin guide and be top level stores or is, or are they, you know, more just about having, uh, you know, a vehicle to keep people inside the, the retail spaces? Well, you have to be old enough to remember that department stores used to have tea rooms right. and cafes right. and restaurants, and they were all badly located. They were upstairs behind the uh, the bedding department, uh, and they were badly located in order to drag you through the store uh, so that you would be exposed to the ma- maximum amount of merchandise. Uh, about 40 or so years ago, they began to kick these restaurants out because they were no longer productive. Mm. Uh, they were moving into big shopping centers where there already were restaurants. Um, now they've discovered uh, or rediscovered the power of food. Uh, but they need, uh, they need a very strong uh, marquee out front, a big name attraction in order to get people to come because uh, – there are so many uh, strong other competing food ventures around them, so they've had to ramp up the uh, the merchandising and the product quality and uh, and the merchandising appeal. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I go on. I would say that I mean, having a Mark Vetri doing some different type of concepts within Urban Outfitters, uh, I would go. You know, I you know, I think I would go there for the food and and you know, for a store that I would not not necessarily go to. And that's just one example of just going to seek out a chef that I love and that's how they get me in as well. That's correct. I see a more low common denominator where they introduce the idea of a bottomless brunch and they just try to take the drunk online shopping experience into real life and they just give you as many cocktails and then they just maybe have like a little like you know uh, cart that rolls around you can order it like dim sum and then perfect. Um, we're gonna duty, take, like duty free. Yeah, drunk, exactly, yeah, like duty free. Buy, buy some stuff. Um, we're gonna do a quick musical break, um, and then we'll be back talking trends. We're gonna play a band from a song from one of our favorite bands, Radical Dads, uh, just because we love them, and now they're actually dads. Um, and then we'll be back.
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Uh, we are talking trend forecasts. Uh, one of the things that I think is really relevant, because it's going to happen tomorrow, is that Chipotle is going to close all of their stores nationwide for four hours to teach their employees about food safety um, in the light of their, not, not one, not two, but three various outbreaks. Um, which is interesting because I think in your report, you touched on Chipotle before they uh, kind of found themselves in this type of hot water. But this leads very well into these restaurants trying to get rid of really bad ingredients and moving towards a healthier, cleaner type of eating that the public is beginning to demand. This is a movement that's been growing for a generation. Uh, we used to uh, we used to call people who uh, waved their arms and, and screamed about uh, what was going into the food we eat as being cranks and uh, and malcontents. Uh, but a couple of generations of uh, good uh, newspaper reporting, um, several excellent books, uh, and uh, increasing uh, consumer pressure on the packaged goods industry primarily. Uh, has caused uh, all the uh, products that you see in the supermarket to start screaming at you that they don't have this, they don't have that. Um, right. Uh, there's no GMO in this. There's no hormones in that. Um, very often there never were and never will be, but that's, it makes a good label. Right. Uh, and this growing consumer pressure is really has what, what caused uh, the consumer packaged goods companies to uh, clean up their act, and they're still doing it. Uh, and restaurants have have come along uh, pretty quickly behind it. Uh, the thing about Chipotle is that it's uh, it's not in the same league as the, what we just were, were talking about, uh, because uh, you know Chipotle hasn't had any uh, of the chemicals that the restaurants that are taking them out <laughs> uh, have had. Right. Uh, Chipotle's problem, uh, and um, I, I'm going to write about this someday when I uh, get my thoughts in order, so let me bumble something out now. Yeah, we won't hold sure. you to it. Uh, I think we're seeing the beginning of uh, what I'm calling the war on fresh. Uh, and, mm. and and it's, it's because Chipotle has been rubbing uh, the additives uh, mantra uh, into the noses of a lot of other of its fast casual and fast food competitors. Uh, you remember Chipotle said that uh, Taco Bell has more ingredients in one of its tacos than uh, Chipotle has in its whole store. Mm. Right. Uh, so there, there's a lot of uh, glee and hand rubbing uh, when Chipotle got... Uh, Caught in the trap of uh, of norovirus and uh, and w- whatever else their their customers got, uh, but that Chipotle problem was the result of uh, iffy sanitation uh, practices, uh, and and that can be cleaned up. It was not the result of them poisoning people by putting uh, putting lead in your food. Uh, so there, there are two separate issues. One is uh, how clean and sanitary is our food supply, uh, and the other is uh, how safe is our food to eat because of the chemicals and additives that have been put into it. And how much do you think that this is a fad to appease people and when no one is looking and they forget about it, they move back, um, versus that this is something that will, will stick? Well, I, 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 I'm not privy to... Chipotle's internal workings. Yeah, uh, but also yeah. for the for the cleaner, healthier menu. It, 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 I mean, the the menu is clean and the menu is healthy and the food is fresh. So I meant like the um, like fast food, uh, the other ones that do have the additives, the Taco Bells of the world. Oh, they're going to have to get the additives out. Yeah, uh, but right. the difference between Chipotle and uh, and the fat, or let's let's say the difference between the fast casual industry and the fast food industry is that the fast food industry is still selling manufactured food. Right. And the reason that you go to a fast casual restaurant uh, is because you can see the fresh ingredients in front of you and have a choice of what you want and watch watch it prepared. Uh, that does that doesn't mean there's no germs in it. Uh, and right. so the challenge is to get the germs out of food that's made by people. 
Right. Do you think that you're going to see an overall shift in the food supply chain um, because these, you know, these the largest buyers of food and you know animal products are making these shifts? Are we going to see healthier, you know, trends in food? Are we going to see less virus? Are we going to see like less E. coli across the whole food system in America? Uh, I think there's. Uh some rationalization to be done about the food distribution system uh, and, and in part it's what you just said uh, if, if you look at the rise in say uh, organic products uh, and then you scratch your head and you say well this organic product that I just bought at the uh, farmers market uh, how sanitary is that really uh, and uh, what what sanitation controls are, are imposed on that part of the product chain as opposed to uh, Campbell's Soup buying uh, 40 million tons of carrots uh, with a certain sure. set of specifications of what has to happen to it after it comes out of the ground. Right. Uh, all of that needs to be rationalized. So there's two things going on. One, we want our food to be safer. Uh, one, uh, more and more of us want it to be organic which means we don't want to have chemicals thrown on it. Uh, so yeah. uh, there needs to be a rationalization of the whole system. I mean, I think we are also seeing with these, you know, health and diet concerns and people being, you know, a little afraid of what's going on in the, you know, especially the meat industry with hormones and rising prices. You know, vegetables are really getting a huge push um, by some of, like, the top restaurants where meat is either moving way to the side or off the plate entirely. You know, this is something that happened uh, all by itself. Uh, it didn't require uh, an advocacy, and it didn't require uh, groups of people stampeding uh, through the streets, waving placards that we want our vegetables. <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's been growing over uh, a couple of decades uh, to the point where restaurants just quite naturally have been uh, ramping up their vegetable presentations, uh, and uh, a nice pun. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that. <laughs> um, oh, I wish I could do that again. Uh, restaurants yeah. have been ramping up their uh, uh, their vegetable presentations, and uh, also the quality of the vegetables that they buy, and the amount of skill and talent that they're willing to uh, pay for to apply to the restaurants. So it's not just a bunch of steamed broccoli with a, uh, a lump of butter on it. Uh, they're treating uh, vegetables uh, with the same respect as they are fish and, and other forms of protein. And I think, uh, you know, when you look at what Dan Barber and his team have, have been doing, uh, we ate there, uh, you know, a few years ago, and the thing that stuck out to me most the entire dish was the dish of the parsnip cake. And we did have proteins and everything like that, but I remember that and invent the for the first time thinking this is better than any of the meat that we ate for the entire meal. Yeah. Also, Mark Vetri, to go back to him, has this 10-hour tart that you know I can still remember all these years later. And I think what we're beginning to see is, or we're beginning to learn what people will have known for a long time, is that you can get deeper, richer flavors out of vegetables than you sometimes can even get out of certain proteins. There's uh, you, yes, you're right, uh, and there's there's a big movement toward uh, roasting vegetables, uh, which in a sense is a way of uh, evaporating the the water in them, and getting a bit of char on the outside, so that the vegetables in fact become more meaty in flavor, uh, and more meaty in texture because they chew differently when uh, when they're roasted than when you just throw them in a pot of water. Uh, I should add, by the way, that uh, my wife, Roseanne Gold, in one of her cookbooks, um, has a, uh, a turnip tort. Uh, that's every bit, of, every bit as good as Vetri's. Um, oh, yeah. Well, next time she comes in, we'll, uh, we'll have to try a couple of slices. Of course, your, reader, your listeners should know that we're sitting here eating uh, Roberta's uh, fabulous pizza. As always. Uh, uh, and as I'm always. Now, I, I, and, you know, the thing that we're also seeing in just a sort of come full circle is that you're seeing McDonald's um, who are trying to rebuild their healthy image uh, especially in places like Japan adding more vegetables to different patties and, and sandwiches it, it, it's necessary all over the world and uh, it, in Japan McDonald's has a, uh, a, a turkey burger that has uh, edamame uh, and corn 
uh, inserted into it so it looks like it's partly vegetarian and part meat. And by the way, that's not a bad way to go. Uh, there's nobody, yeah. that, nobody that says that you have to be a vegetarian in order to enjoy your vegetables. So uh, it, it's not a question of I'm going to have vegetables or I'm going to have meat, uh, but I'm going to have more vegetables and less meat. I mean, I think that's one of the interesting tactics that even caught my attention where it might have used to been all all or nothing, where now you see it's like if you just eat less beef and if you just stick to like chicken for example that's less harmful and it's a slow kind of like education of like a really gradual reduction in steps you know it's like a two percent change as opposed to a 50 percent or 100 percent change it's true and there's something else that's been going on uh the the gluten-free uh movement which is expanded beyond any reasonable uh (laughs) use uh but the the people who are uh avoiding gluten and uh, even on a larger sense, the people who have been avoiding carbs uh, that come from the white stuff, which rice, pasta, uh, bread, uh, potatoes, uh, those people are now getting diff- vegetables, but they're different vegetables. They're now green vegetables. Mm-hmm. They're yellow vegetables. They're orange vegetables. Uh, and so... Uh, the nutritional value of what they eat versus the carbs that are in them, that, that equation has shifted. And so uh, it's not a question of getting a, a bigger lump of mashed potatoes next to your steak. Uh, it's the idea of getting a small piece of steak and a, a whole bunch of really good fresh vegetables. I, I do have to say uh, before we, we move on, if, if you like what we're talking about, The Third Plate by Dan Barber is an excellent, excellent book that really talks about the future type of plate where what you just spoke about where a meat gravy is about the only type of meat that finds its way onto a vegetable rich dish yeah um but yeah. It's, it's not now, all we, veg- vegetables though no pork 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 products and vegetables go very well together yeah <laughs> yeah now we don't want to think that uh cleanliness and no animal byproducts and healthy living are the only trends we're seeing for next year because the sandwich of the year you're calling it now is the fried chicken sandwich which is a favorite of our family and sort of popping up on everything from shake shack menus secret menus at night market why has the fried chicken sandwich become the go-to sandwich for all these restaurateurs and, and chains Damned if I know. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll eat them. Damned if you know, but it's delicious. Right? No, it, 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 I, it, it has. Uh, look, fried chicken has a lot going for it, uh, not to mention the calories and the, and the fat and grease and salt <laughs> that come along with it. But, uh, Love it. But, but it, look, it makes noise uh, in, your, in your head and your mouth when you eat it. Noise uh, uh, sometimes we describe as the sixth flavor. Mm. Uh, it, it makes noise. It's succulent. Uh, and uh, there's been a movement uh, in, the, in the food world at, at all levels uh, to gild the lily. Uh, it, what I mean by that is that uh, chefs have been highly creative uh, up and down the, the uh, price scale in adding all kinds of outlandish things to outlandish things. <laughs> Uh, right. So, uh, you know, if you want to say the start of it was Roy Choi in California with his uh, Korean ingredients in a taco. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Uh, and, and that spread um, like a plague. <laughs> uh, so uh, what you now find is uh, chefs and, uh, and creative cooks starting uh, to put fried chicken on their menu, fried chicken sandwiches, with all kinds of ethnic ingredients on them. Uh, so it's not just a fried chicken sandwich. Uh, the message really is the condiments that's on them. Is it that thing where every culture has their version of a fried chicken dish and it's just being reinterpreted as a sandwich? Uh, that's, that's highly possible. Uh, it's also uh, possible or equally possible that uh, chefs are just inventing uh, wild things to put on food. What's the craziest one that you that you've seen? Uh, I I did see a fried chicken sandwich that had uh, uh, all the ingredients that would go on uh, on a on a bacon chili cheeseburger. Oh, 
Oh my God! <laughs> okay. Um, now, you, the by the way, by the way, you know, fried, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, had a uh, a sandwich, the name of which I I don't the recall. Double down. Double down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where where they got rid of the bun, and instead of the bun, were two pieces of fried chicken with lettuce and tomato between them. Soothsayers, <laughs> if you will. Um, we're going to take a quick musical break. Um, with uh, the band Pre, who played in live live in studio last year, and then we will be back to close things out on Food Trends for 2016. We are back. One of the really interesting things that are kind of coming, um, we won't really touch on this, but I think with the rise of food halls um, and the kind of, with food trucks and everything, we're getting more and more access to different uh, ethnic cuisines. And I think what comes with that is the spices that come with those cuisines. And I think that what we're seeing now is a, a larger introduction to where you might not have otherwise gotten access to like, you know, quote unquote, authentic flavors you're getting a, a touch of that um how do you see that kind of influencing food in, in the coming year and you know mining you know your cultural heritage to bring a new type of flavor uh, to the masses wow if i could answer that i'd uh, join the republic <laughs> i'd join the republican debate <laughs> um Actually, I think something different is going on in food halls, uh, but but let's stay with uh, with your point. Uh, the uh, there's there's a provisional nature in a in a food hall that says that it's got a whole bunch of tenants, and uh, either they make it or they don't. And if they don't, uh, then they're replaced by somebody else. Mm. Right. So, uh, these are great venues for uh, experimentation. Uh, because uh, you know the whole the whole business won't collapse; just one tenant might. And uh, so you can uh, you can take risks on local operators uh, coming into a food court and uh, and producing high quality food and hope they make it. I think what's going on in, in food halls is something that's quite different. Uh, I think the original intent of a food hall is what you just said. Uh, but uh, it's taken a whole different turn. 
uh, and food halls are now being populated by people who already have successful restaurants, mm. uh, who have a track record, uh, who uh, have the same ability to draw in the people as the, as the restaurants that the department stores are putting in. Right. Uh, so it, it, we're in a, a kind of winner-take-all economy, whereas uh, we're in uh, – if you have a successful restaurant or two, then you get to open a whole bunch of more successful restaurants. And if you're a mom and, right. pop, and if you're a mom and pop who nobody ever heard of, the landlord doesn't want to talk to you. Right. Right. I mean, it's it's uh, I guess safety and investment. Yeah, we did. But, um, we did go, talk. Uh, we did talk a couple sure. of years. Yeah, we talked a couple of years ago to a, a whole group of people from Singapore uh, who wanted to uh, explore the feasibility of opening a big. Singapore type food uh, hall in New York uh, mm. uh, and if you've been to Singapore you know there's every ethnic cuisine in the world there right uh, right and uh, we said to them that uh, there was no need to do a feasibility study they should just do it uh, <laughs> well being who they are they uh, got back on the airplane and never returned uh, but they should have uh, and so now we have uh, Anthony Bourdain uh, right. uh, talking about opening a massive uh, food hall in which a, a Singapore food court uh, will be just one component. Right. So, right. so the moral of the story is if you think of a good idea long enough, someone else will do it. <laughs> yeah. You know, just to, just to touch on one thing with the spice blends and, and what's going on, uh, especially in America, it'll be interesting to see to track, you know, this, people coming in from Syria and from the Middle East now, and to see, you know, so, this is sort of the year zero for that, and like to watch how those flavor profiles spread across America, and to like actually track it when people are aware of it and knowing when it started, um, and to see like at what point do those become like integrated into you know the mass food cuisine if they get integrated. Well, we have we have a lot of evidence of uh, that having already happened. Uh, every mm. time, every time there's been a, a, a political or an economic up, upheaval or revolution somewhere in the world, uh, a new cuisine is introduced to the United States because of all the immigrants who come here. Uh, right, and and the prime example of it going mainstream more recently than most uh, is Thai food. Uh, right, and the Thai people came. Uh, in the aftermath of the Vietnamese War uh, and settled in Texas uh, to a large degree where they became shrimp uh, shrimpers mm. uh, and uh, and moved into other cities as well uh, and began to serve their own food to their own population uh, and uh, gradually uh, all the rest of us caught on to it. Uh, and this is, by the way, the way Chinese food became popular in the United States. Uh, so, uh, what happens is you get a you get a, a enough of a concentration of uh, of an ethnic group, and they begin to cook their own food for themselves. And uh, then some nosy food writer spoils the whole thing by <laughs> discovering it. Um, and now, also, you know, it's not just sort of the big cook cuisines, but you know, with these different different ethnic groups coming over and also with different flavor profiles you're seeing different types of, of snacking and snacking is sort of this you know you know medium soothsayer oracle of how flavor profiles are changing here and then across the world you're absolutely right um, if you want to know how America's eating uh, just take a, a, a quick walk down the snack aisles in supermarkets the uh, you know we We've become a nation of pepperheads, uh, and, yeah. uh, and and to a large extent, by the way, we can blame the same Thai people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, we we become a nation of pepperheads, uh, and are now discovering uh, that heat is not necessarily enough. Uh, and right. if you if you look at uh, what the big spice companies are doing. Uh, I mean, when you go to the spice shelf in a, in a store, you're used to seeing pepper and uh, cardamom and cinnamon and cloves, each in their individual bottles. Uh, but they're now coming out with uh, regional and ethnic spice blends uh, because we're not just interested in the heat, but we're interested in the underlying flavor uh, behind that heat. 
So uh, you'll find a lot of that going on in the snack aisle where a variety of spices uh, are added uh, as overlays to things on chips, uh, popcorn, uh, and uh, uh, all the all the new kinds of uh, snacks that you get from uh, uh, dehydrated seaweed uh, to uh, uh, black bean cakes. Uh, they're all uh, getting an application of, of these ethnic spices. What's also interesting in the snack aisle, uh, and maybe even more important, uh, is that uh, they're getting an overlay of health. Uh, I don't. Th- I don't think this is necessarily a good thing. But if you look at the uh, if you look at the labels on the packages, and you say, "Oh, our, you know, our, our our tortilla chips have quinoa in them," <laughs> yeah. uh, th- there's a lot of that going on, uh, and so uh, it, it 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 makes a a, a bad snack seem uh, good for you, even though it's got the same. Um, there's a French word for it called chazarai. It's got the same chazarai in it. <laughs> now, uh, as, as we turn to the last few minutes of the show, uh, talking on some some buzzwords, some quick trends, and as you said, you know, mentioned just briefly that uh, sometimes heat is not enough, and you know, one of the most popular dishes is uh, Nashville hot chicken, which is one of the hottest dishes on any menu. But the flavor goes beyond the heat and the chicken itself, and you're seeing it everywhere from uh, Nashville to L.A. with like Howlin' Rays and beyond. Uh, Nashville hot chicken uh, hit the uh, hit the airwaves uh, a couple of years ago very quietly, uh, and uh, it's now being served not only everywhere but I believe uh, either this month or next month that Kentucky Fried Chicken will roll it out nationally. Uh, so you know, there goes the neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but this is a, this is a, a chicken that, uh, depending on where you are, is either dipped uh, in a very hot sauce before it's breaded and fried, or it's breaded and fried and then tossed into the hot sauce the way buffalo chicken wings are. And uh, there's uh, you know there'll be a competition to see who can blister your lips worse. Yeah. Well, I mean, Princess right. Princess Hot Chicken got um, a James Beard Award. I think it was a couple years ago. And I think people saw, oh, aha, aha. there's something we can go. Yep. Um, to continue the 2016 buzzwords, um, seasoning is something you touch on, uh, which is everything bagel seasoning mix. Um, where do you see that growing, or how do you see that being applied? I just saw uh, a grilled short rib. Uh, by the way, it's not easy to grill a short rib. Uh, and, have it, and have it come out edible. Yeah. Uh, uh, I just saw a grilled short rib with everything bagel seasoning on it. Uh, and uh, I've seen pastrami with everything bagel oh, seasoning. I would, I would definitely eat that. I got some meat too. I would eat that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I'm waiting for one of the spice companies to come out with a mixture. Um, you're also seeing, uh, you say, general salad flavorings everywhere. Where have you seen that outside of your standard... Chinese styrofoam container. Uh, I can't remember which restaurant it was, but I was just uh, in the last three or four months uh, had General Tsao's uh, sweetbreads. Oh, uh, I've had uh, those before too. Mm. They, they were they were served in, in nuggets, uh, and and they were served as a snack. That's pretty good. good. And uh, would you order them again? Would I order them again? Sure. Yeah. If I could remember where it was. <laughs> Um, Peter Behan from Lucky Peach was on last week, and we, we touched on ramen. Uh, I mean, ramen is obviously just continuing to grow, which I think everyone wins. Um, do you think that ramen will continue to be traditional, or do you think we'll see chefs do their own spin uh, on ramen and, and localize it for local f- flavors? Oh, I think I think everything is being given its own chef spin. Right. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, some of which I don't understand at all. Uh, Especially on the on the spirits end of the business, uh, I'm I, I can understand why you put honey and Tabasco sauce in uh, uh, bourbon, uh, and that's because you want to sell it to people who don't like bourbon. And I can understand all the flavors in vodka, uh, because vodka has no flavor anyway. Fair, uh, right? But I 
I, I was talking to a, a gin distiller uh, from uh, the Cotswolds. He just opened the Cotswolds' first mm-hmm. gin distiller. It's called Cotswold Gin. And he's also making whiskey. And he said there was an attempt in England uh, a couple of years ago from one of the Scotch whiskey distillers to age the Scotch in Tabasco barrels. And I, I just have to scratch my head and say, why would anybody want to ruin Scotch like that? I mean... Right. But yeah, I, yeah, I mean, there are just some things where more is not more. <laughs> and it's just, and uh, I mean, I get it. You need to diversify your, your products and, and, you know, it can't just be, you know, one type of whiskey. You got to have apple flavored, you know. I don't think you need that. Like I, that. I have to say, I don't but, think you, know, you need I, that. <laughs> yeah, I think, you, I think people try. I think um, I, one of the reasons you need it. Oh, we don't need it, you yeah. and I. Uh, we don't need it. We don't need it. Uh, the people who are uh, making this stuff are fighting for visibility and shelf space. Yeah. So uh, whether it's uh, six variations on ketchup uh, or 13 different flavors of mayonnaise or 22 different flavors of vodka, uh, they're all fighting to get more and more shelf space in the liquor stores and uh, supermarkets. If they want it, yeah. Now, if they want it, now I think I think what we uh, what we're going to have to end on is the most future of all of your trends and predictions and and buzzwords uh, for next year and probably beyond. But it's 3D food printers um, <laughs> and the idea that you could. Uh, well, I don't even know. I mean, I you know, for those who don't know what 3D printing is, is you design something and it's printed layer by layer with some sort of plastic, and you can create rings and necklaces and things like that. But how does it apply for food that is edible? Uh, it, it's not just for making trinkets. Uh, uh, many of the uh, exotically uh, shaped parts that go into airplanes are printed uh, by fundamentally what is a technologically uh, equivalent of a, of a Xerox machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, 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 as you said, it applies layer by layer the various components. And when you're yeah. all done, uh, you've, got, uh, you've got a widget. Uh, and you can do the same uh, pretty easily now with chocolate and uh, and other similar sweet desserts where you just uh, when, when I say layer by layer, um, you may have fifty thousand layers before you're through. Yeah, but it'll, I, but it'll come out it'll come out an eight layer. And I mean, and the you know the the misnomer it's it's easier to say three D printing, but the original name is additive manufacturing, which is a better way to wrap the head around. And I think the headlines of of you know burger in the laboratory, which is not essentially three D printing, but if they can build proteins like that and then apply it to a printer. You know, you, it's it's not hard to see how you could then get a replicator like from Star Trek. Yeah, you can. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, before we, we get out of here, we want to just uh, you know thank yeah. you for coming on and see what you have. What do you have planned for 2016? Any exciting projects uh, of your own? Ah, uh, well, we're working uh, on an underground steakhouse underneath the ancient Hotel New Yorker in Manhattan. Uh, in what was once uh, several decades ago a Chase Bank vault. Uh, wow. So, so that, that sounds like it'll be fun. Uh, and we're working with a startup uh, begun by uh, a bunch of overeducated Chinese students uh, who are getting their PhDs in, at Yale University uh, who, uh, because they got bored one night and won a contest, uh, are now uh, have just opened their first uh, restaurant called Junzi Kitchen, and it's a Chinese, northern Chinese mm. uh, equivalent of uh, Chipotle. Oh wow! Huh? Wow. Okay. Well, we'll and, be there. Okay. It's good. Wait, what type of are they serving? Is it fast casual? Like it's, it's fast or? casual. Uh, uh, they they they're they're serving bings and bowls. A bing is a Chinese flat wrap uh, that's uh, thicker and more flavorful than your normal tortilla. Uh, and it, it's filled with uh, uh, whatever you want. It's filled with braised meats, uh, chicken, pork, uh, tofu, uh, each with its own uh, distinct flavor profile. It's very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of fresh stuff to go onto it. Uh, well, of course. In keeping with current trends. Of course. Um, so thank you for coming on. Um, where can people uh, go to read the report um, for this year? 
Oh, they can go to your website. <laughs> uh, it's www.baumwhiteman.com. Awesome. And they can also find your contact information as well if they want to pick your brain on any possible projects. They can. I'll just leave it all exposed. Oh, perfect. Um, well, awesome. Darren, thanks for calling Thank in. Thank you. Well, good to hey, hear your voice live. My pleasure. And um, yeah. thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Um, and we will be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions anytime at info at heritage radio network.org heritage radio network is a 501c3 non-profit to donate and become a member visit our website today thanks for listening